Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Oh Lord, we seek your face now as we come to your word. Lord, we pray that you would just be magnified through it. Lord, we pray that your spirit would illuminate it and apply it to our lives. And Lord, may we not leave this time unchanged. Lord, draw people to yourself, I pray, and minister to the, the deep needs of people's hearts. Lord, thank you that, that uh, Lord, though our flesh withers and fades, Lord, your word endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in almost every area of my life, by default, I tend to operate on the assumption that it's up to me. And uh, if I experience success in a certain area, uh, I tend to grow confident and um, eventually maybe even proud and, and, and boastful about myself when I succeed. But on the other hand, if I fail, I begin to lack confidence, growing fearful and, or angry, and then eventually even maybe leading to despair. It's just sort of the, the default human setting. Paul Miller wrote a book last year entitled J-Curve, Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life. And in that book, he gives a, a really helpful little chart that describes this struggle. He calls it the failure boasting chart. <laughs> and it's really quite simple. It's just a, a slanted line. I don't know if you can see the words of that on the screen. Can we make that full screen for just a moment? And uh, at, at the top of this chart is uh, sort of boasting, right? When we are successful, we, we boast. And, and down at the bottom of the chart would be failure, just what I was just describing. And it, you might notice on, on this chart here uh, in the book, he applies this, this chart to the Apostle Paul before Christ. Because the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 begins to boast in his flesh, uh, things like being circumcised on the eighth day, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, all these sorts of things. He, all these things that Paul had to boast in that seemingly was bringing him towards religious success and giving him grounds for boasting. Well, we all by default tend to view ourselves on a chart like this in just about every area of our lives. For example, at at work, we, we climb the corporate ladder. At home, we climb the social ladder in the neighborhood or at the club. Everybody wants to, to climb up these sorts of ladders and, and we'll do anything to avoid slipping back down. Now, as problematic as, as this way of, of living can be, the real problem The real problem is that when we we view our spiritual life 
on a, on a ladder like this. We, we view our relationship with God as if it were a spiritual ladder by which if we do certain things, we can gain approval with him and even grounds for boasting. As we do good things, we grow in self-righteousness. And the, the great hope is that we will do enough good things to at least be on the upward trajectory where God will, will surely accept us. And into this kind of natural way of thinking about just about everything, the Bible steps in, sometimes rather rudely, into our lives and disrupts this natural, fleshly way of thinking. Romans chapter 1 through 3 locates us on this chart, doesn't it? Paul, uh, the Lord through Paul in Romans 1 through 3 locates us squarely at the bottom of the failure boasting chart. Spiritually, we are failures before God. Romans 3.10, Paul summarized this by saying, none is righteous, no, not one. And then Paul yanks away the ladder and and he yanks away the spiritual ladder that we were going to use to climb out. Romans 3.20, he says, For by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. We can't climb up from our position at the bottom of the chart up to the top. Paul yanks it away. We, we can't do it through, through works of the law by doing good things. Works of self-righteousness. Now, Romans 1-3 through 3 makes it abundantly clear that the only demonstration of God's righteousness that you and I will ever know or experience on a chart like this, is the demonstration of God's righteousness that we see as his wrath revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Right? That is a manifestation of God's righteousness. The manifestation of God's righteousness revealed against unrighteous people like you and like me is his wrath, his holy, righteous wrath against, against all that is wrong in this world, and we wouldn't want them to be any other way. So it's clear here, I think, that you need a new chart. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul turns next when he begins to discuss the, the good news. Right? Finally, here we are. After seven weeks of the bad news, here we are at the good news. And Paul's going to announce essentially a new chart, a a new way to receive the righteousness of God. And this time, not for your destruction, not the wrath of God, but a new manifestation of his righteousness for your good. How is that possible? Has God changed his righteous standards? I think Paul wants us to understand at least two things here in this passage in in the announcement of this new way, this new manifestation of his righteousness. One, he wants us to understand that the righteousness of God hasn't changed. And two, rather, in the gospel, God's righteousness has been manifested in a new and better way, a way that is for your good. So that's kind of the outline of my sermon here this morning. We'll take those points one at a time. The first one here, the righteousness of God hasn't changed. 
You know, people change. Last Monday, I had the opportunity to get, to get together with a friend of mine whom I hadn't seen since high school. It had been, it had been 20 years since I'd seen this guy. I'll tell you how old I am right there. Um, and let me tell you, I, w- I was pleased to find, as we, as we got together, we met halfway between our, our homes. He lives in Philly. I live here in Jersey. And a- as we got together, I was pleased to find out that, that even though much had changed in our lives, we had really changed along sort of a similar trajectory, right? We both, last time I'd seen him, we were in college. We both have finished our education. We're both married now. We both have young families of boys, and we're both serving in full-time ministry. But there was one, one major difference between us. Uh, one of us still had a full head of hair, and one of us did not. And I like to think that one of us was saving an awful lot on, on barber expenses. But seriously, people change. It's, it's what we do. God, on the other hand, does not change. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever, doesn't he? In Romans 3.21, Paul is going to signal what appears to be a major change in God's ways of doing things. Look at this, verse 21. He says, but, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. With these words here, but now, Paul signals this major transition, this change. What's he, what is this change that he's signaling? Well, it's certainly cha- signaling the change from discussing for a long time the bad news to now he's going to be discussing the good news. Imagine the world without this but now. Right after this terrible news that we've been reading about in Romans 1 through 3. But no, God steps in and, and Paul's able to say, but now, righteousness of God. But that's not all that Paul is signaling here with this but now. He's also signaling a major change from one era of salvation history to another Right? He's signaling a change from the old covenant established through the, the law of Moses on Mount Sinai to now the new covenant established through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Right? We are under a new covenant. And I, I think Paul felt it was important for everyone to understand that this gospel or this good news is a, a new manifestation of God's righteousness. It's apart from the law. It's apart from the old way of do, doing things. Apart from the old covenant. There's just something new. There's discontinuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This is something legitimately new. But at the same time, there is great continuity between the Old Covenant and the New. It's not as if God's righteousness has changed. God does not change. In fact, this new manifestation of God's righteousness that Paul's announcing here was anticipated by the Old Testament scriptures, by the law and the prophets. There's been a 
a new manifestation, but it's the same righteousness. How can this be? Well, it can be because the righteousness of God is now being manifested in a new way. It's the same righteousness, but it's being manifested in a new way for your good, for your benefit. You know, electricity is, is both dangerous and useful, isn't it? Depending on, on how you interact with it. The thunderstorms this week uh, reminded me of this. And it reminded me of one important way that I do not want to interact with electricity. You know, I, I walked home from the church back to the parsonage one, one day this week for lunch and I could see the storm brewing in the sky and I, I sat down at the lunch table and I said, wait a minute, where, where's Toby? Where's my, where's my son? And Michelle mentioned to me that, you know, he was out on a, on a run and I, I suddenly thought, oh man, the storm is coming and I, be, I became frightened for him. I wanted him to get home, so I, I called him and, and I, I urged him, you know, get home fast. Because there, there's, there's a danger, there's a storm coming. The, the, the electricity that we interact with through, <laughs> through a, a thunderstorm is present in a wrathful way, isn't it? We, we, we can't, it's not useful to us in any way, but that same electrical power that is so wrathful to us in the storm is also very beneficial to us when it's manifested in a different way. Powers my air conditioning. I'm really thankful for that this morning. It, it gives me light so that I can see at night. It, it powers all my devices and appliances. Now, I would never seek to recharge my, my phone by climbing up this church steeple and strapping it to the, the steeple and waiting for electricity to strike from heaven and recharge it. No, it would destroy my phone and, and possibly me, right, to do that. It's the same power, but I, I need it to be delivered to me in a way that is good and not going to kill me. Well, God's righteousness is, is kind of like that. And in verse 22, Paul announces a new manifestation of God's righteousness for your good in a way that you can receive in a saving way. And so we see here in, in verse 22a, the beginning of verse 22, sort of the announcement of this new way. Paul says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul announces this new manifestation of God's righteousness, describing it with three important qualifiers. First, he says it's through faith. God's saving righteousness must be received by faith, not by works. And faith is not a work. Faith is, is really the absence of working. It's ceasing from work so that you can just believe and trust in God. And by the way, this really isn't the part of, of salvation that's new, right? Paul is going to demonstrate in Romans chapter 4 that salvation has always been a matter of faith. But make no mistake, it is contrary to our default nature in the flesh. It's contrary to our default uh, tendency to want to engage in that failure boasting chart that I described at the beginning. So this new 
righteousness of, of God is through faith, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. The new and beneficial means of God's righteousness is through a person, through God's Son, through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. They're all yes and amen in Him. And as such, there, there is no such thing as believing in the promises of, of God apart from believing in Jesus. He is the object of our faith. You know, there are a lot of people that, that treat faith sort of in the abstract, uh, apart from any specific object uh, as if the object of faith doesn't matter. You know, as if it's all the same re- regardless of whether you, your, your faith is in Muhammad or, or Buddha or Moses or whoever, fill in the blank or whatever you place your faith in. But that simply isn't true. It is immensely important who or what you place your faith in, isn't it? I mean, if you were to jump out of an airplane, you would want to make sure that the 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 parachute that you had strapped to your back was trustworthy, that you could place your faith in it to give you a soft landing. The same thing is true as you hurdle towards eternity and your eventual death. You want to make sure that what you're trusting in, what you have your faith in to save you from your sins is going to provide for you that soft landing, that salvation that you're looking for. Paul says that this manifestation of God's righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. And lastly, he says it is for all who believe. For all who believe. Here it is. This is a righteousness for all those who believe. It's a beneficial thing. And not only that, it is for all who believe. Just as as the, the righteousness of God is being manifested from heaven, is being revealed from heaven, as wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and that's a universal experience, whether you're, you're a Jew or a Gentile. So now this new manifestation of God's righteousness is universally available to all who believe, to all, Jew or Gentile, and everything in between. So this is a, quite a, a bombshell announcement when you truly understand it. And it explains why Paul was so excited and, and bold in wanting to proclaim the gospel in Rome, back in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, when he said he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But how exactly does Jesus make it possible for sinners to receive the righteousness of God in a saving way? How does this work? Well, Paul moves on now to the explanation. How is this possible? Paul's explanation of how can really be summed up with three theological-sounding words in this passage. And those three words are justification, redemption, and propitiation. And I could rightly preach a sermon on each one of those words. In fact, maybe someday I will. Maybe someday I'll return to this passage and and do a little mini-series on each one of those words, focusing in on each one of them individually. But I'm going to have to be satisfied this morning with a a brief explanation of each one of these. 
But listen, I, I don't want to lose you here before I even begin. I know that, that some people are intimidated by these words, right? Because they're, they're unfamiliar. And, and we don't use them in our everyday speech, in our everyday lives. But I want you to keep something in mind this morning. These words, justification, redemption, propitiation, they are not man-made theological words made up by some scholar somewhere in a, in a seminary or in, a, in an ivory tower. These are biblical words inspired by the Holy Spirit through the human authors. These, these words are, are given to you as the word of God as, uh, to be treasured as part of your, your, your discipleship with, with Jesus. So you can maybe get by with sticking with simpler words and not really even enter into really understanding these words, but let me tell you, you're going to miss out on the richness of the insider biblical lingo that the, the Bible gives you. You know, everything that you want to get involved in has some kind of insider language, doesn't it? Picked up a, tried to pick up a new, ho- a new hobby during the uh, COVID-19 lockdown. I, I got it in my head. I wanted to make some sourdough bread. And as I started getting into it, watching YouTube videos, I began to realize, it, man, you can turn, making sourdough bread can be, is like a full-time hobby and it has all of its own lingo, all of its own tools, all these sorts of things. All I wanted to do was make a loaf of bread. But there was language to be learned. There was tools to be picked up. Right? And that, that can be said of any hobby, any pursuit that you might have. There is insider language. That if you learn it, your experience is going to be richer. And you're going to be able to talk at a higher level than if you, if you hadn't put the work in. The point isn't to become puffed up with knowledge, but the point is to drink deeply from all that the Bible has to offer you. And, and, and know this, that as you interact with these words, it, it's, a, it's a process over the, the course of your discipleship with the Lord where God just adds layers of understanding. Maybe you only get a little bit this morning, but don't be discouraged. Continue to to seek understanding and God will add layer upon layer through the ups and downs of your discipleship journey. Uh, These words can feed you on your worst day and they can humble you on your best. These words can help you explain the gospel to your children and your grandchildren and your neighbors. And they can comfort you while you lie on your hospital bed. And so it's worth the effort. Look at how Paul explains the, how this works, how this new manifestation of God's righteousness works. Look at verse 22, the second half of verse 22 here. Paul says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm not going to spend much time on this phrase because it's really just a restatement of Romans 1 through 3, the bad news that we've been talking about so much. But if you've never memorized this verse, this is another great one-sentence summary of of a larger chunk of Scripture, and I would urge you to memorize it and use it in sharing the gospel with other people. And then look at verse 24 here as Paul presses on. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. This word here, justification, 
to be justified. It simply means to declare righteous. To declare righteous. It's a, it's a legal term. So picture a courtroom setting and a judge pronouncing over a defendant who's been accused of something. I have found you to be justified in your defense. Though you've been accused of wrongdoing, I say you are righteous. I'm not sure who, who popularized this, but many Christians remember the meaning of justif- justified with the, the little uh, wordplay here that they say justi- justified means just if I'd never sinned. And, and that's not wrong, right? It, it, that does capture some of what it means to be justified. But if that's your kind of working definition of justification, I want to press you a little bit further in your understanding. I, I really would love everyone in our church to just memorize this simple definition of justification, that it means to be declared righteous. Justification does mean, it, it does mean the forgiveness of our sins, the er- the erasing of that negative record. But I think saying that that justification means just as if I'd never sinned really almost brings us just to a point of being okay. It's like we've been forgiven of our sins. It's just as if I'd never sinned and now I'm okay. But justification is so much more than that. It's a declaration of righteousness. Not just being okay, but being righteous. I think we, we often know this word intuitively when we speak of someone who is arguing with someone else and, or, or maybe we speak to them and, and we might say to them, we, we know that they, they did something wrong and they're, they're trying to justify themselves. They're trying to show you that in reality they were right, that they were righteous in that situation. And we say, stop trying to justify yourself and just admit it. You did it. You're guilty. Right? In that scenario, that person who is arguing, trying to justify themselves, they're not just trying to, to, to get to a point of neutrality, but they are trying to argue that they, in fact, are righteous. And that's exactly what we achieve through this new manifestation of God's righteousness. God is able to look at us and declare over us Righteous. Righteous. How is it that God is able to do that? One, one word for you, it's by grace. It's by grace. Grace is God's undeserved, unmerited favor. And it really could be a fourth term this morning that we really zero in on, but um, Paul says here that we are justified freely by his grace. It's favor that you don't deserve and God gives it to you simply as a gift. How can God do that? How is it possible that, that the holy God can extend to you a gift of righteousness like this? Isn't this the same God that we were just talking about who has wrath being revealed from heaven against our unrighteousness? How can he now just extend to us this gift of declaring over us righteous? Well, Paul continues here by explaining justification by way of, an, of the next word here, and that is redemption. 
How can God justify you without demanding uh, the cost of death that you deserve for your unrighteousness? The answer is summed up in this word, redemption, which means deliverance, usually at a cost. Look at verse 24b where Paul says this. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When you think of the word redemption, I think the best thing to do is to to picture buying someone out of slavery at a cost. You can also picture the exodus where God delivered his children out of slavery in Egypt, redeeming them and bringing them up into the promised land as his own people. Right? It's the same imagery. It's redemption. Christ's death on the cross paid the costly price of death for us. Right? He redeemed us. He delivered us. But he did it at a very high cost, at the cost of his own Son shedding his blood for us. We have been redeemed, bought out of slavery to sin and delivered into the freedom of the family of God. And you say, but how is it that Christ's death works to set me free? How can, how can another man, even if he's the son of God, shed his blood and that works as a payment that sets me free? How does that work? Well, the answer lies embedded in our last term here in, in verse 25a. That word is propitiation. Let's just read this verse again. Beginning back in, in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is really at the heart of the gospel. It's your greatest problem. If your greatest problem that's been described here in Romans 1 through 3 is that God's wrath righteously burns against your unrighteousness, then the core of the answer to that big problem is propitiation. Because propitiation is a sacrifice that quenches wrath. It's a sacrifice that quenches wrath. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was designed to communicate that God's wrath for people's sin needed to be quenched. It needed to be satisfied by a death. Right? The, later in the book of Romans, Paul is going to say that the wages of sin is death. When Adam fell in the garden, God warned him ahead of time, You can eat from any tree of the garden, but don't eat from this one tree because on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God's wrath righteously burns against rebels and sinners like you and I, but God has made a way for there to be a quenching of that wrath through an innocent sacrifice, an innocent substitutionary sacrifice. And that's what we see pictured in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system. You know, someone sinned, they would bring a, 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 some sort of an animal, like a lamb or a bull or a goat that was without blemish. And they would sacrifice it, lay their hand upon it even, and, and they would sacrifice that 
animal in their place. It was designed to communicate, this animal's dying because of my sin, and that should have been me. And the, the priest would actually then even bring the blood of a sacrifice even into the Holy of Holies where God, God's special presence, presence dwelled. And there you would find, in the Holy of Holies, you would find the Ark of the Covenant. It's like a, a big rectangular box. And do you know what's in, inside of the Ark of the Covenant? God commanded Moses to put inside the Ark of the Covenant the tablets of stone upon which he wrote the Ten Commandments. It's the, the, the law that condemns us. Is a record of that law is inside of that Ark of the Covenant. And then on top of that Ark, there's a lid. And on that lid are two cherubim, two angelic creatures with their, their wings extended out over the, the cover of that Ark. And the Shekinah glory of God sits enthroned above the cherubim on that Ark presence of God himself and as he looks down he sees the the covenant the commands that he has given and the priest would come in there with with the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle the blood there on that that covering of the of the altar in between the presence of God and the presence of the of the law there would be blood that would cover and propitiate God's wrath for our sin. That, that, that was the, the symbolism that existed there. It, it built into the sacrificial system. And in fact, the word propitiation is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to that lid there where the, where the blood was sprinkled. It's, it's called the mercy seat. And even in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 and verse 5, God, uh, or in, in, in that verse, the mercy seat is referred to, and that's this word here we find in Romans that, that means propitiation. It's a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God for us. And so we can have the confidence and know that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God's ang- righteous anger toward us because of our sin isn't just swept under the rug. It has been dealt with completely. And, and it just sets off this, this domino of good news in our life because when the, wrath of, the righteous wrath of God is, is quenched through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as he bled on the cross, we then are redeemed out of slavery to sin and delivered into the family of God. And through that redemption, then God then is able to declare over us, righteous because our sin has been placed on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and we receive Christ's righteousness. We are justified as a gift by grace through faith. It's a remarkable, remarkable manifestation of God's righteousness. It's God's righteousness really put on full display, unlike it ever has before and ever has been since. Because in the cross we see We see God's love on display and we see his righteous justice. We see his righteousness to save and his righteousness to judge coming together in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the most brilliant, the most glorious, the most magnificent, the most fully orbed manifestation of his righteousness that the world has ever seen. 
And listen how Paul sums all this up here. He sums it up in the last few verses, in verses 25b through 26. He says, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, that is, he he, he was being patient with the sins because the, the blood of bulls and goats never was really able to take away sins. Hebrews 10 tells us that. He was looking forward to the sacrifice that Christ would offer. In God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time when Jesus Christ came and died for our sins so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You know, most people today, if they're willing to concede that, that God even exists, they will insist that surely he is a God of love. Right? And he is. God is a God of love. But they often don't have any concept of, of God as a God of justice. Or possibly if they do conceive, have some notion of God being a God of justice, then surely he's a God of, of justice to those who are further down on the, the, ch- the failure boasting chart than me. Right? We need God to be just to, to the Hitlers and the Stalins and whoever else out there that we perceive to be truly worthy of that. There is a, an apparent contradiction in most people's minds between God being a God of love and a, a God of justice. How can he be both? Well, enter the Son of God, sent into the world to be the Lamb of God, to propitiate the wrath of God, redeeming us from sin at the costly price of his own blood, and thereby making it possible for God to actually declare us righteous. It's the coming together of of these two things, God's perfect love and his perfect justice. And that's why Paul can say here that in Jesus Christ, God has been revealed to be both just, he himself is righteous in in what he does for us through the cross, And at the same time, he is able to be the justifier. He's able to declare us righteous. And it's a a marvelous thing. We stand in all of it as those who have placed faith in him. You see, God's righteousness hasn't changed. It's only been more brilliantly manifested in a way that can actually benefit sinners like you and like me. Now, I don't have time to un- unpack it this morning, but we can see why Paul says next in verse 27. He says, Then what becomes of our boasting if it, it is excluded? Right? Boasting, therefore, if you truly understand what, what, what this new manifestation of God's righteousness means, then there's not one shred of boasting that remains. And if you feel like you deserve some sort of credit for your salvation or that you have some sort of self-righteousness upon which you can stand, then maybe you need to go back to the beginning of Romans chapter 1 and start all over again until you do get it. (laughs) 
So in closing, I, I just want to challenge you in two specific ways. First, I want to challenge you to get off the failure boasting chart once for all. You need a new chart. I'm confident that there's someone within the sound of my voice this morning who needs to get off of this kind of, of, of struggle between trying to be good enough, trying to do enough to, to earn God's favor and, and just vacillating between pride and despair. I don't care where you would self-identify on a, a chart like that this morning. You cannot attain the glory of God with a self-righteousness, nor can you be disqualified from salvation for a lack of self-righteousness. Hear the announcement this morning from the Word of God of a new and better way through faith in Jesus and what He has done for you. This is the answer that you've been looking for this is your opportunity to be made righteous before God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Secondly, I want to challenge my church family in particular, those who are, are already believers, to first marvel at these things and then be able to explain them to others. Right? The, the more I contemplate the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more I marvel at this full-orbed manifestation of God's righteousness through the cross. And I think it would be a shame this morning if we Christians walked away from this text of Scripture with just a mere intellectual understanding of the economy of grace and how it all works and fits together. Worse yet, if we were to walk away with a yawn because we've, we've heard it all countless times before, we need to stand in awe of the, the manifestation of the revelation of, uh, of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ at the cross. And after we marvel at the revelation of Jesus Christ, then I want to challenge you then to also uh, understand it in such a way that you are able to share it with somebody else. This is the very heart of the gospel. And, and these terms might be intimidating to you, but let me challenge you to learn them and, and to learn them in such a way that you can actually share them with someone else. I, in fact, I want you to do this this week. Put these three words, justification, redemption, propitiation, down on a piece of paper and, and write them in your own words and then try to share it with somebody else. I don't care if that somebody else is your dog or your cat. Share it with somebody else. And, and make sure that it's something that you can explain to somebody else because it is just that important to be able to articulate these things to, to others. Be able to articulate how God is both just and the justifier. This truly is the heart of the gospel. God's righteousness does not change, but it has been more brilliantly manifested for all to see and respond to. How will you respond this morning? Let's pray.